like I said, I have the privilege of having Tony Meyer here. Tony, uh, when I went to North Dakota State University as a freshman, uh, way back when, I won't tell you when, but it was way back when, uh, Tony had, uh, was, had just come on staff with Chi Alpha as uh, the assistant to our campus pastor, our, our, uh, our Chi Alpha director. And uh, Tony was like the, the cool, really like hip guy that everybody wanted to be like. And I thought I always thought Tony was like too cool to be my friend, essentially. Tony was wearing skinny jeans before skinny jeans became a thing. And uh, like he made skinny jeans cool. So uh, like that's the type of guy Tony is. But the reason I love Tony so much is because uh, Tony taught me how to be a, a man of God who is tender to the things of the Holy Spirit. A man of God who is tender to, uh, to, get on your, to, to know how to get on my hands and knees and pray uh, and to get on my hands and knees and believe that God wanted to use me in a way that was probably uh, in, a, in a greater way than what I thought maybe God was capable of using me in my life. And Tony had the uh, incredible privilege of being part of a ministry, helping lead a ministry, and seeing that ministry grow uh, from 100 students to nearly 500 students, hundreds of people getting saved, and, uh, and then left all of that to go plant a Chi Alpha at the University of Iowa and, uh, and pioneer a movement there that is still going on to this day. And Tony is now on staff and is uh, at, a, at a local church in Iowa and is killing it for, for Jesus. And he's not alone tonight. Uh, he is also with his wife, Kayla, who does ministry right alongside, shoulder to shoulder with Tony, and is as big of a part of the ministry as what Tony gets to be. And so Kayla is here in the back. Everybody wave at Kayla. And uh, they have come to Alaska. We went hiking today. We saw an avalanche. It was amazing. Uh, and they've seen moose and doll sheep, so they're like pretty much Alaskan now. And so uh, without further ado, please welcome Tony Meyer to the microphone, everybody. Wow, thank you so much. Um, yeah, Alaska, I, it's a dream come true, honestly, to be here with you. Um, my wife and I, when we got married, I, I said, hey, for our honeymoon, do you want to go to Hawaii or Alaska? And unfortunately, she said Hawaii. <laughs> so here we are 10 years later in Alaska. Um, yeah, I just want to, I know my, uh, Steve introduced my wife, but my wife Kayla is an amazing, amazing woman, partner in life and in ministry. She is the devil's worst nightmare. And so I, I just, I love, love, love her. We have two kids, uh, Evie, who's four and a half years old, and Dean, who's pretty new to the party. He's eight months old. And uh, Evie is really bummed that she couldn't come. Uh, but maybe next time, maybe next time. Um, you know, I was really anxious on the itinerary that Steve sent me. He said, uh, what day is it, Thursday? Thursday at 10 a.m., Adventure with Steve. And that's all it said. And so I said, what is Adventure with Steve? I have to know, I have to know. So um, he showed us around a little bit of, of Alaska, and honestly, I was looking around Alaska, and I was like, man, this is a lot like Iowa. If you just take the mountains away and all the wildlife and just add cornfields, it's pretty much exactly the same as Iowa. And uh, at one point, we are driving down the highway, and we saw some sheep, uh, doll sheep, and Steve stopped 
just <laughs> stops, pulls over, and he says, do you want to run up there quick? And I was like, yeah, how long is it? And he's like, oh, it's probably like 10 minutes, and we'll be there. And I was like, awesome. And he just screams <laughs> up this mountain. I've never seen somebody move so fast up a, a side of a mountain. And I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And I thought I was in shape. And then uh, all of a sudden, we're like three-quarters of the way there, and I just stop. And he's still going. He turns around, and I said, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> but I didn't die. And then he stopped, and I could hear the disappointment <laughs> in his voice. Um, but I didn't die. But if I fall over, it's because my legs aren't working anymore. Um, I could say a lot about your pastor, um, Pastor Stephen and Aaron. They are amazing people. And uh, one of the things I, I will say about them and, uh, is they are uh, people who practice what they preach. And I've known a lot of pastors in my life. I've known a lot of people who've walked with God, and they are uh, the real thing. This, the, the people they are behind closed doors are the same people they are every week here with you. And... Uh, I can remember Steve being a freshman and being like probably many of you in this room, not sure what you're going to do with your life, completely unaware of maybe God's plan for you, maybe completely un uninterested in, in what God's plan for your life is. But then there was this moment, there's this moment that I believe that God longs for each one of us to have. It's this moment where God meets us where we're at, and he gives us the opportunity to surrender our life completely to him, where we could, would simply say, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And you here tonight, it's amazing for me to, to honestly see what's going on in this room tonight because you were an answer to prayer. We prayed for you before you knew about this, before you maybe even came to campus. We prayed for you. We said, God, I pray when Stephen and Aaron come to this campus, they'll reach students for the kingdom of God. And you're here. And you're here. It's an incredible privilege to serve Jesus. It's an incredible honor to to, to co-labor with him, to, to, to journey with God. And so tonight, I believe, and throughout this weekend, I hope you'll join us. I believe that God, for some of us in this room, is going to awaken a destiny that you never thought possible, an adventure with him that you never thought possible. Because if this walk with God is boring to you, then we're doing it wrong. Because every day we can wake up and say, God, where do you want me to go today? What do you want me to do? And we go on this adventure with him. On your itinerary, it says adventure with God every morning. <laughs> And hopefully we don't die along the way, right? What I've noticed about this generation is um, there's a desire to do s to make an imprint on this, this planet, and that's an amazing thing. But in a fatherless generation, a generation of uh, cultural relativism, it's, it's been difficult to know who God is, and God, I believe, has been misrepresented in many ways. And many people growing up not knowing who God is and what he's all about. And maybe for some of us in this room, God is like this tyrant who's this angry, spiteful person who's just up there waiting for me to make a wrong move so he can just smite me. For maybe some of us, God is just like indifferent about your life. He doesn't really care. So it's hard for you to take risks in life because you're not sure if you can really trust God. For some of us in this room, God is just this all-loving being. He doesn't really care what we do in this life because he's just all love and there's no justice in your version of God. So God wants to reveal himself to you. And, and tonight we're going to look at uh, very clearly a portion of scripture where Jesus reveals to us the heart of God. A few years ago I was officiating a wedding. And uh, the father of the groom was this, was this man who looked like a lumberjack. Like he was wearing flannel at the wedding. He had a, he had a beard, like this big amazing beard. He was like just ripped. And then I found out he was a lumberjack. <laughs> So I said, wow, it's awesome, it matches. And, um, 
and he didn't say anything. And then at the reception, he got up and he just told the story. And he said, this story reflects the heart of God. And it was a story that said, there was this little girl and, and her mom, they're walking through their little town. And they're just window shopping uh, at the little shops. And they're looking at all the different windows. And, and they come to this one window. And this little girl, she looks up in the window. And she sees this mannequin with this, this beautiful pearl necklace. And she says, Mom, I need, I have to have that necklace. Will you buy me that necklace? And the mom says, no, I won't buy you that necklace. But you know what? If you, if you maybe, you know, do some stuff for the neighbors and, you know, do some stuff around the house, maybe you can earn enough money, you can buy that necklace. So this little girl, she's bound and determined she's going to get this necklace. So she does extra work for the, or she does some chores for the neighbors and extra stuff around the house. And finally the day comes where she has enough money to buy the necklace. Her and her mother, they go to the, the shop and they buy the necklace. The shop owner takes the necklace off a mannequin. He puts it around the girl's neck. She looks at herself in the mirror. And she's never seen something so beautiful in all her life. It's her prized possession, the greatest thing that she's ever owned. And so from that moment, this, this, this necklace never left her neck. When she'd go to bed at night, the necklace would be there. When she'd wake up in the morning, the necklace would be there. When she'd go to bath time, her necklace would be there. It wouldn't come off her. She knew she was holding tight to this prized possession. One day her dad came home. And he sat down on the, ca- the couch and he says, honey, come here, sit on my lap. I want to ask you something. So she crawls up on her daddy's lap and he says, darling, do you love me? And she says, yes, dad, of course I love you. And he says, well, darling, if you love me, I want you to give me that necklace. And she became indignant. She was so angry. She said, dad, how dare you ask me for this necklace? You know how hard I work for this necklace. She got off his lap and she went into a room and slammed the door. Next day, dad comes home, and he sits down on the couch, and he, he says, honey, come here, sit on my, sit on my lap. I, I want to ask you something. And she crawls up on his lap, and he says, darling, do you love me? She says, yes, dad. I told you yesterday that I love you. You know I love you. He says, honey, if you, if you love me, I want you to give me that necklace. Again, she gets indignant. She said, Dad, how dare you ask me? I'm not, don't ask me for this necklace again because I'm not giving it to you. And she gets off his lap. This went on for days and days and days, this song and dance. And finally, one day, Dad comes home and he sits down on the couch and he says, Honey, I want to ask you something. And by this time, she knows already what he's going to ask. She crawls up into his lap and he says, Darling, do you love me? She says, Yes, Dad. Honey, if you love me, I want you to give me those pearls. So she looks down again at these pearls, and she says, okay, Dad, I'll give you my pearls. So she takes off the necklace. She looks at him one last time. She hands them to her dad. She is about to crawl off his lap, and he grabs her, and he pulls her tight. With his other hand, he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a real pearl necklace. And he puts it on his neck, on her neck, and he says, honey, for so long I've been wanting to give you these real pearls, but you wanted to hang on to the fake ones. And I believe that's what we do in our own lives. We hold on to our, our own stuff because we really don't trust God is who he says he is. We don't believe that if I surrender these parts of my life, these parts of my heart, God, are you going to give me something else? Are you going to give me something better? Is it, is it really true that you have this life for me that is greater than I could imagine? Is it really true? Is it really true that you love me more than anything in this world could ever love me? 
Is it true that there's grace for my life? Is it true that there's mercy? I can't possibly believe it, God. So I'm just going to hang on to all my stuff. God is looking to give us something better. And I believe tonight that God wants to show us who he is in a greater way. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. This is the parable of, uh, of the prodigal son. The parable is just like a story. You know, uh, um, Many of you probably heard this um, parable. It's kind of the crown jewel of all parables. And... Um, my first, actually, my first message at a Chi Alpha was on this, and it was horrible. It was brutal, and I just thank God that it was never recorded, and I never have to relive that again. But Jesus tells these, this parable, and it's uh, one of three parables. And the first parable is a, a parable of the, the shepherd and his sheep. He has 100 sheep, and one goes missing. And so he leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one. So many people listening to the story would have thought to themselves, this is silly. Why would he leave 99 sheep and go get the one? This is just part of the sheep business. You'll lose the sheep every once in a while. By the way, we are the sheep in that story. And if you know anything about sheep, it's not exactly a flattering picture because sheep are not intelligent. They're easily led astray. They're followers. Then he tells a second story, and it's a, a woman who lost, she has 10 coins, and she loses one. And those coins uh, amount to basically a year's salary. And she loses one of those co- coins, and she searches day and night all over her house until she can find, until she finds that coin. And then she finally w- finds the coin, and she calls all of her friends, and they all rejoice and have a party. And then he tells this story of a man and his two sons. And it's been called the prodigal son, but it should really be called the loving father. Because it's more accurately a picture of of two sons who don't know their father. They don't know the true character of their own father. So Jesus is telling the story to to really like two groups of people. There's like the, what would be classified as the sinners, the the prostitute, the thief, the tax collector, the, the outcast. And then this other group, which is like the religious elite, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is telling this story to to show them who God is, the heart of the Father. And that's one of the biggest reasons Jesus came, to reveal to us who God is, the heart of God. So he starts out in this story in, in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the un- younger one said to his father, 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 give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. For the and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Let's stop there. Jesus, in in this parable, is giving an extreme example. 
an extreme example. Uh, this story is so offensive to a first century Jew in so many ways, and we'll talk about that. First, you have this son, and he goes to, he's the youngest son, so he goes to his father and said, Dad, I don't want to wait till you die to get my inheritance. I want it now. And in those days, sometimes a father would, would say to his son, okay, I'll give you your inheritance, and you can take it, and you can expand the family business. But that's not what the son is asking. He's essentially waiting, saying, I, want you to, I wish you were dead, and I want my money now. And so for a first century Jew, this would be like he is humiliating the family. The reputation, the family name is on the line, and this son is going against the family. So it says that the son leaves. Now, Jesus is very specific in the language that he uses. So remember that it's the son who leaves, and it's the father who remains. It's the son who leaves and the father who, who remains. So if you're feeling far away from God tonight, it's not him who moved. We have a propensity to, towards wandering. So this son goes off to a distant country. All throughout this story, you would have heard people shake, you would have seen sh people shaking their heads. You would have heard them gasping at, at various moments because of the absurdity of the, the offensiveness of it. So then he says he spent all of his money. He spent everything that he had on wild living. Later we learn it was like on prostitutes and, and, and drinking and all these things. And he has nothing. So what does he do? He hires himself out. To a citizen of that country. This is basically representing like what we all, all do a lot of times when we find ourselves in trouble. We double down. We put our, we dig our heels in deeper. We, we put our stakes down. We say, I'm going to figure this out. I can handle it. So he hired himself out to a person of that country. It's basically like he was marrying himself out to someone, not literally, but he was like, he was keeping himself in that season, in that bondage. And then he went and worked with the pigs. And at that point, you would have heard people gasping. You would have heard somebody being like, pigs, are you kidding me? To a first century Jew, they represented the pagans. They were, they were unclean. They were disgusting. And then he said he longed to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. You probably would have heard people dry heaving at this point. It's just like nothing is more disgusting. And then they would have thought, this is the end of the story. This is it. Here we have Jesus is telling a story of a son who betrayed the family. Committed these egregious sins against the family, and now he got what he deserved. End of story. Thanks, Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 17, it says this. But when the son came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy, worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is what happens. The son shows us right away he doesn't know what it was to be a son. His view of the father was skewed because he thought, man, you know what? Even if I, I go back, I know my father wouldn't take me back. That's just ridiculous. He's not going to take me back. And I know he wouldn't hire me, but maybe I could be like an underling of one of his servants. Maybe I could just get the table scraps from the, from the servants. Even that would be better than this. So in verse 20, it says he got up. In the Greek, it says he pulled up his stakes. It represents repentance. You're going this way, and all of a sudden now you're going this way. He got up, and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is such an extreme response to such egregious sin. Because here we have this, this wealthy patriarch of the day, who in those days, if a, the, he would have been in the house waiting. He would have been in the house sitting. And if his, his son returned, he would have maybe come down and sat at his feet and begged for forgiveness. But it says that the, son, that the father ran to him. So that means the, the father was looking for his son. He was waiting for his son. And he ran. And a patriarch in those days would never have run. And he runs to his son. And he throws his arms around his son. In the Greek, it says he, 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 kissed, he covered his face with kisses. I mean, he remember, he was with the pigs. He was dirty. He was disgusting. He was covered in what the pigs were covered in. And here's his father covering his face with kisses. And then the son has says this, this speech that he's prepared. He says, the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupts him. And the father says to the servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. And so they begin to celebrate. This son has a speech prepared. He said, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Let me just be like an underling of one of your servants. And this, the father, he doesn't even dignify it with a response. Like he doesn't even, he doesn't have a rebuttal. He just ignores him completely and, and tells his servants to go get the robe, the best robe. You know whose robe was the best robe? It was the father's robe. It was the master of the house. Get it and put it on him. Put that ring on his finger that, that represents the family, that he is now a son again. He can do business in the family's name. Put sandals on his feet. Only people of the house wore sandals. This is my, this is my son. This is my boy. And he's back. Jesus is revealing to these people and to us tonight. It doesn't matter how far away you are. It doesn't matter how deep your sin runs. That there's redemption, there's restoration, and there's grace, and there's mercy for us. There's this love that goes beyond our comprehension. That breathes life into our lifeless souls. That fills the emptiness that, that haunts us at night when we fall asleep. So many times in my life I read that part because that, that was me. And I, we end the story there, but there's a second son. And so Jesus starts talking about the second son. And the second son is supposed to, in the Jews' eyes, they would be like, okay, well now he's going he's gonna to show us the rotten son. Now he's going to show us what the good son is like. But that's not what this is either. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has gotten him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he, an but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never give me a fat, or you never even give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property on prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf. So here we have a son, and he's still at home. But Jesus is giving us the the idea that this son is there's a distance between him and the father. Yeah, maybe he's in the home, but he has no idea who his father really is. There's this distance between them because. 
he's home, but he's coming to the coming to this house. And when, it, when he would have thrown a party in those days, especially a wealthy man like this, he would have thrown it. The whole town would have come. And so he comes, and he's like, he's standoffish, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's going on here? There's a party going on. This can't be good." So he asked somebody about it, and he said, "Your son." And he's like, "Oh, gr- or your your brother." He's like, "Oh, great, my brother, the one my dad never stops talking about, the one my dad's never stopped looking for." And so he he won't even go into the party, and this too would have been a great offense. But look, the father goes out to this son as well. The father leaves his own party, which never would have happened, and he goes out to the son, to his boy, and then the son. He, he distanced himself from the family. He doesn't even address his dad as father. And he says, he's your son. He's not my brother. He's your son. Listen, I've been slaving for you. I've been sla- The words he's using are not that of a son. This son thought it was all about performance. It was all about striving. Work a little harder. Work a little harder. Work a lot a little harder. And then the favor of my father will be upon you. But the son, this father, he responds with such love and such grace as he does the other son. In verse 31, he says, my son, he reestablishes the relationship. The, fa- the son tries to distance himself, but the son, he, he says, or the, the father says, my son, you've always been with me, and, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be, cl- be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now it's found. He said, we had to celebrate. My son, everything I've had is yours. Really what he's saying, he's like, son, I appreciate your hard work. But I've always loved you. I've always loved you. My heart has always been for you. It's not about been about your performance. My love for you is not conditional. For some of us, as we walk with the Lord for a while, we start to fall into the performance of mentality, don't we? When I'm a good boy, God loves me. When I'm not a good boy, God doesn't love me. It doesn't mean that God condones everything that we do. But God's love is not that fickle. And God's love is this, this, this thing that co- causes us to walk into freedom. That's what God's grace is. It's the ability for us to, to walk in the power that he's created us to walk in and do the things that he's asked us to do. To walk in freedom. And he's called each one of us by name in Galatians, it says this, by f- into freedom. He's called us all by name to walk in freedom. In my life, I've want to share this and I'll, I'll close. In my life, I've been both of these sons. I grew up in a home that was like a normal Christian family. I have an older sister and two younger brothers, kind of like the, the prototypical Christian family. My, my dad was, you know, in, integral part of the church. My mom sang on the worship team every, every week. After my youngest brother was born, um, my mother went into this depression that she never got out of. And in that, during that depression, she started uh, taking pain medication for her depression, which we all know is not a good thing. And she became addicted. She comes from a long line of alcoholics and addicts in her family. Finally, that turned into alcoholism. And my dad obviously was not on board with the drinking, so she kicked him out of the house. And so he left, and he lived in this tiny little apartment. And uh, that's when things got really crazy at home. I remember mom stopped coming home a lot of times. And so me and my older sister were left to do things, take care of the house. Uh, she would come home, maybe passed out or 
sleep for days. One time we were in class and this girl got up to tell a current event. We were talking about newspaper clippings that we had clipped out. She got up and she said, there was a woman who got pulled over for a traffic stop and over the course of the DUI traffic stop, she stole the police officer's car and there was a long police chase and she said the lady's name and it was my mom. And I was unaware that any of this had happened. And our lives took this bizarre turn. You know, we don't always get to know the things that happen in this life. I mean, you're old enough to know that. We don't control the things that happen all the time. We make choices. But that's why, we need, man, we need to walk close to Jesus. We need to walk close to Jesus. So this went on for years, and my dad, um, finally the only way to get custody of us was to get a divorce. And so he divorced my mother. My dad is my hero. I watch him throughout this time. I could go into my, his bedroom every morning and see him on his face, just like a little cry out for his family. Someone who had a perfect family and then see the just crumbling down around him. My mother became homeless at that point, in and out of treatment. And um, finally, after a time, I was about 11 years old. She was sober for about five months. She had a place to live, and she had a job, and she was doing well. She had rededicated her life to Jesus. And uh, one night we went out as a family, went out for a movie and supper, and I remember sitting in the car afterwards, and we're all laughing. My parents are both there, and I thought in my head, man, mom and dad are going to be back together soon. Mom came in and took us in. And I remember I'll never forget it. She looked at me and said, Tony, I love you, and I'm glad I'm not here. And that was the last time I ever saw her. That night, for whatever reason, she decided she was going to get wasted. And she parked her car in her garage where she was living and shut the garage and burned it all down. I never got a hold of it. And wrote a note that just said, I'm just so tired. I want to go be with Jesus. The next day, I was called out of school. I remember my dad took us home, and there was a bunch of people at our house. And I, I remember not wanting to be around anyone. I went out behind our house. And I just started screaming at God. I said, God, how could you let this happen? It is obvious to me that you don't love me because you could have done something and you didn't. And I was so angry with my mom and I angry with myself. Maybe if I would have been better behaved. How could she do this to us? Didn't she love us? All these different things I could think. But that day I made a conscious decision, 11 years old. I said, God, I know one thing for sure, that I want nothing to do with you, and I don't want to serve you. I'm not going to follow you. And so for an 11-year-old, I mean, you don't have a lot of choices of your own, so I still had to go to church, but in my heart, I hardened my heart to the Lord. For the next nine years of my life, I did everything I knew in my, I could in my power to do the opposite of what I thought God wanted in my life. 14 years old, started drinking and getting into drugs, and that happened throughout all high school. And it would have been my beginning of my senior year, I... I turned 18 and uh, got kicked out of high school and just for fighting and being high all the time and not going to class. And so when you go to school, they want you to go to school. And so I didn't do that. Um, but I was 18 and I knew everything when I was 18. And so my dad, he said, Tony, 
I love you, but if you're gonna, if you're not gonna go to school, then you gotta go. You're gonna be a man. You're a man now. You gotta be. You're 18. You're a man now. So you need to go make a make a make a way for yourself. And so I thought, wow. Like I said, I know everything. So I moved out in this little tiny apartment, and worked overnights at, at the Petrolube, changing oil on semis, which I still to this day don't know how to do. And I just lived my life. And not, you know, you imagine being a senior in high school and uh, having an apartment and a sister who would buy you alcohol. All my friends, I had a lot of friends. And uh, I wasn't prejudiced. I'd put anything in my body that I could find. And over the next two years, I just drank myself into oblivion. I thought, you know, everybody on the outside thought, man, Tony, he's so awesome. He's so crazy. He's so wild. He's so fun. But on the inside, I just hated myself. I hated myself. I suffered with depression and suicidal thoughts. There wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about blasting my brains out. And I just, I hated myself. And every night I would cry out to God and I would cuss him out. I said, you did this. This is why I'm so miserable. Finally, I was in and out of jail a few times and uh, got put in a treatment facility that was basically like, get better or go to prison. And so I thought, well, whatever, I've been to treatment so many times in my life, I know what to, to say, I'll jump through the hoops. And so I went, and I had to go, and so I was there, I remember, and I, I was sitting there, and I was looking out the window one day, and I literally had nothing. I had the clothes on my back, and that was it. My roommates, who were like my best friends in the world, had sold all my stuff, sold my guitars and my amps, and threw my mattress out on the boulevard, got rid of everything because they were making room for a new roommate. I literally had nothing. I had no one. I hadn't talked to my family in six months. Last time I saw them, I told them I hated their guts and I wanted to see them again. And there I was, completely alone in the world. And I look out the window and I see this car pull up. And I think, and it looks like my dad's car, and I think, what is my dad doing here? My immediate response in those days was anger. I got so mad. And I saw my dad get out of that car, and I saw my two younger brothers get out of that car. I saw them pop the trunk, and they started pulling groceries out and clothes and toiletries. And I, you know, I just didn't have anything. And that was the first time in my life that God spoke to me. And he showed me, he said, Tony, this is love. There's nothing that you did to deserve this. And I actually tried not to. But this was love. In, lo in the world, love is all about performance, about doing well. If you do well, then love is given. But I did nothing to deserve that. That day my dad gave me this, this Bible. He said, Tony, you should read this. I said, Dad, I'm not going to read this. He said, well, you don't have anything else to do. I said, yeah, you're, you're right. I don't, but I don't, God, I haven't read the Bible since I was like five years old. I don't know. And he said, just, just start maybe in the Psalms. Dave was kind of a depressed guy, <laughs> and so are you. So I did what I tell no one to do, which is I just flipped it open. <laughs> and uh, I flipped it open to Psalm 18. I started to read this amazing Psalm of David. And he says this in verse 16. He says, and you, God, you sent from above and took me. You drew me out of many waters, and you delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. 
for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in my day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. You brought me out into a broad place, and you delivered me because you delight in me. I read that, and that was like, it's like the words left off the page and hit me like a ton of bricks in the chest. And there were words over and over in my mind. Delivered you because I delight in you. I delivered you because you deli- I delight in you. And God started to speak to me. He said, Tony, I want to deliver you because I delight in you. And I said, God, there's nothing of value in me to save. Why I don't understand why you would want me anyway. And over and over again, I wanted to deliver you, Tony, because I delight in you. So I fought this for the next few months. I didn't know what to do with it. Finally, one day I'm sitting in a greasy spoon hole in the wall diner with my dad. I loved the place. The food was terrible and it smelled bad and there was a lot of weird people there. It was just like my kind of place. And I remember he looked across the table at me at a lull in the conversation and he said what an old AA adage. And he said, Tony, aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired? I actually sat and I thought about that. I said, yeah, I'm sick of just, I'm sick of being angry all the time. I'm sick of this emptiness. I'm sick of being, hurting people. He said, yeah, Dad, I am, but I don't know what to do about it. I said, Tony, I think it's time you give your life to Jesus. I had a new start. I said, yeah, Okay. He was like so surprised. <laughs> like, you, like you have to know, like I was the one in the family that was like the unsavable one. Like in my family, it was like God, you could save anybody else, but Tony, that guy, I just he's just too far. And so he he paid that bill so fast. And we went out to our '98 Dodge Caravan, you know, it's really a ho- holy and anointed place. And we went out there, and there we sat awkwardly. And I waited. I said, Dad. Aren't you going to pray this prayer that you've been practicing or you rehearsed for this moment? I don't know what to do. And he said, Tony, just pray. Just praying is just talking to God. Just tell him that you need him. And so I put my hands like this. I said, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me my walk with you. And I prayed this very simple prayer. And I meant it. And that was the first day of my life. Soon after that, I... It was very lonely. I didn't have any friends because all my friends were using me. So I uh, met a campus pastor named Pastor Brad. He invited me to try out for him. He said, we don't have a worship leader. And I know you're really musical. Could you lead worship? And I'm like, well, I've only been saved for six months. And I'm still on probation. Is that okay? And he's like, well, there's really nobody else. And I said, well, I still smoke. And can, well, wait, can this work against my community service hours? And he said, yeah, I think so. So you know you're in a tough spot if you're, writing, you know, if you're signing off on community service hours for your worship leader. But there God began to show me what it was like to walk with people, to be accountable to people, to be known and to know, to be real with people. And I could go on and on and on and on. A year later, though, I was still struggling. I spent that first year just striving and trying really hard to be a good boy. I even got arrested accidentally one time. And I was just, I was trying so hard, but it was exhausting. And I remember writing in my prayer journal, I said, God, I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't keep it up. It's just too difficult. I'm going to let everybody down. And I said, God, I need you to just rock my world. 
You know, God honors our prayers. He hears our prayers. And even if we don't even know what we're asking, God loves huge prayers. And I didn't even know what I was asking. But a couple weeks later, my brothers and I were leading worship at this junior high camp for those of you who are little junior highers. And it's a Saturday night service, and this, this guy calls us up, and he, he prays a prayer over us. In this moment, I had this experience with the Holy Spirit where I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus completely freed me from depression, completely freed me from suicidal thoughts, called me into ministry that day, set my life on this completely opposite trajectory, and I've never been the same since. I want you to know that since that day, I haven't walked perfectly with God. There's been times where I've betrayed God, times that I've disappointed God, times where I've been ashamed of him or spit in his face, and God has always chose relationship with us. He always chose, and he knew even beforehand that I was going to let him down. He still chose a relationship with me. And he feels the same about each and every. I'm not unique. Jesus came to this world so that every single one of us could know him. And not just know about him. And not know about this, this God who's way off far in the universe. But this God who can be known by each and every single one of us. And the Bible says that he draws near to all those who call upon him. And all of those who call upon him will be saved. For, so for each one of us in this room, there's a new life to be had. There's transformation to be had. There's redemption. There's freedom to be had. So in a moment, we're going to pray. I believe there's some of you in this room, and the worship team, you can come back, back up. And I think for some of you in this room, maybe there's been a cry of your heart for a long time. You've been looking for freedom in areas of your life. Or for some of you, maybe you've been, you're far away from God. I don't know where it is, but God knows you. God knows you. And on your worst day, he hasn't changed his mind about you. We all bow our heads across this place. Everything that's happened tonight is leading up to this moment right now. That we would respond to God, not respond to people or, man or emotional manipulation or anything like that, but we'd respond to God. And all he's ever wanted was your heart. So I'm going to ask two questions. And in response to those questions, I want to ask that you raise your hand. My intent in you raising your hand is not so that I can embarrass you or call you out or make you do anything weird. I just want to pray for you. And I want to know who you're praying for. Who I'm praying for. So first question is this. Is this, maybe there's this, been this prayer in your heart of, God, show me who you are. I want to know you more. I feel like I have this misrepresentation about who you are in my mind, and I want to see you more clearly. If that's you tonight, would you just put your hand up? I believe that God wants to show you in a greater measure who he is. If that's you, just put your hand up. Don't be afraid. Thank you. appreciate your honesty. Would you put your hands down? Second question is this, if you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you want one. Maybe you've had one in the past, but it's grown cold and stagnant. You need to get your life right with Jesus tonight. You want to pray a prayer similar to that, that, that I did. I want you to just put your hand in the air. I want to pray for you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Appreciate your honesty. You can put your hands down. If you just raised your hand and you need to get your life right with the Lord, I'm going to say a prayer. And I want you to say a prayer like it. God's not looking for a magical formula of words, but he's looking for your heart. So I'm going to say a prayer, and I want you to say one similar to it in your own heart. God, tonight I recognize that I'm far from you. 
recognize that there's maybe areas of sin in my life. There's things that are not pleasing to you in my life. So right now, Jesus, I just repent, which means I just turn from those things. I stop pursuing the things of this world, and now I start pursuing you, Jesus. With everything that I am, I just submit myself and I surrender my, myself to your leadership. You sit on the throne of my heart now. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes and cleanses my sin. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you fill them to overflowing right now in Jesus' name and set them on mission in this life. God, thank you for each one of these precious people. Thank you for their lives. Lord, for those in this room who, who, raised, who raised their hand for that first question, I pray, Lord, you love that prayer of show me who you are. Show me who you are because you just so delight in showing us and revealing who you are to us. So, Lord, I pray right now, Lord, you give us a, just a deeper revelation of your love for us, a deeper revelation of your grace and the peace, God, that, that, that is available to us as believers. I pray, Lord, you just reveal to us the next step and directions in our life in Jesus' name. I pray for those struggling in sin and have secret areas of sin. I just pray for freedom right now in Jesus' name. You just break it. Break it right now in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you that you are, you are under no obligation to, to save us. The same way the father in this story was under no obligation to take his sons back. But you did it all for love. For love, because you so desperately love us. Open up our eyes to see in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to respond for a couple minutes here, but I really hope to see you this weekend. If you're not signed up for the retreat, the whatever it's called, uh, please do that. I'd love to see, see you all there this weekend. my